Kia ora, this is Anderson's Odyssey. I'm Jacob Anderson, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew Chen, who's a software engineer and research fellow at Koi2, the Centre for Informed Futures. It's good to see you, Andrew. Kia ora, good to see you. Yes, we, uh, it's obviously in the last 48 hours, things have changed a lot here. Um, you've been talking for a few weeks now about kind of using the, the tracing app and, and now we are starting to see a lot of that use with this, with this new um, cluster that, that's emerged. Why, um, why do we need a, a large number of people to kind of really use that for that to be effective? And what are the, the limitations currently with it still being only used by a small um, part of the population? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is just that the app that we have in New Zealand is very different to a lot of the apps that are being used overseas. Um, most of the ones overseas are using Bluetooth signals to um, exchange IDs um, for, with other devices that are nearby. And so those systems do require a very high rate of uptake um, because it's all about peering. You, you need to have person A and person B, um, both with the device, both with the app, both with Bluetooth on, in order to be able to find um, that contact if there is a case of COVID-19. What we have in New Zealand is um, a slightly different method, which is based around scanning QR codes at locations. Um, and so what that means is that rather than trying to find contacts directly, we're inferring that if somebody was in the same place as somebody else um, for a certain period of time, that if one of them had COVID-19, the other person may have been exposed. It may seem like a little bit of an academic difference, but it does make a um, significant change in the way that we think about what the necessary uptake rate is. Um, because when we're talking about those Bluetooth systems, um, we're talking about peering and uh, many people are basically saying, well, um, if you've got 60% uh, of the population using the app, then you'll log 60% uh, squared, about 36% of possible contacts, um, assuming that everything is uniformly distributed. When it comes to uh, only focusing on places of congregation or only focusing on um, indoor venues, um, then you might be able to get away with a slightly lower uptake rate and still have the same overall effect in terms of number of contacts being found. Um, but ultimately, the uptake rate is a measure of how many people are participating in the system. So how many people are contributing useful data into the system so that we can um, find out where, uh, who, who the potential contacts are. And then secondly, also, who can then be easily found um, so that they can be contacted and, and, and notified that maybe they have been exposed to COVID-19, maybe they need to um, monitor for symptoms, maybe they should self-isolate. What we've seen with um, this particular pandemic is that speed is critical. Um, the faster that we can get people to self-isolate, the better. Um, and uh, relying on the manual contact tracing is mostly okay. Um, it's doing a pretty good job. Um, and in all of these cases, you do want a human to talk to a contact anyway so that they can reassure them and tell them that things are going to be okay and properly explain what the rules are and what the right actions and behaviours are. Um, but being able to encourage people to self-isolate or get tested very quickly and um, within a short period of time make, makes a big difference to the overall spread. Of, of the disease. So are, having more and more people participating in the system means that 
um, more and more people can be notified quickly. What are some of the, if, say, say if it was a Bluetooth system and you were just walking around and it was pinging where you were going and communicating rather than a, a sort of manual QR system like we have, what are the advantages or disadvantages of either of those systems? Yeah, so this is an active and passive question um, where the QR code system is active because it requires the person to actively do something, whereas the Bluetooth system can be passive because it's happening in the background and doesn't require any human action. So the passive system is probably advantageous from a human behavioral perspective um, because it requires literally no effort once you've installed the app and turned things on. Um, and it means that things aren't getting missed because um, it's happening automatically. Um, the active approach using QR code, the obvious downside is that people forget to scan or can't be bothered scanning, um, but it does put them in control of what data is being collected and, and what data is being um, used for the purposes of contact tracing. So essentially it is probably more on the privacy conscious side um, because the individual is in control. There's also an argument that the individuals can feel like they are doing something. So um, it gives them a little bit more agency and a little bit more of a reward to feel like that they are doing something to contribute um, towards the fight against COVID-19 rather than just wandering around and assuming that the phone is working and doing its thing. Um, this is all very contextual in terms of which one is more suitable or appropriate. Um, the, the context that we were in in New Zealand of having zero active cases and um, cases being successfully caught at the border and life almost being normal for most people is obviously very different to um, the context that you might be if you were in the United States or in the United Kingdom where there are a lot of cases um, and, and people might be feeling much more worried or anxious about it. That, that comment about sort of privacy and, and data is a, a, a nice way to kind of introduce the, the book that's just been published that you're the editor of with, with a number of other uh, authors. Yeah. Um, so you, you, the, the book Zero, Zeros and Ones, Digital Technology, Ethics and Policy in New Zealand, what is the kind of the main premise of the book and why were you guys, um, why did you guys publish that book? Yeah, so um, there's been a lot written about technology issues and technology studies, broadly speaking, around the world. Um, there are a lot of really, really good books out there, um, books like uh, Automating Inequality, um, lots of others that I can't think of off the top of my head right now. Um, but most of them are written in an overseas context, um, particularly in the US and in Europe. And there hasn't been a lot of literature written about um, technology issues in the New Zealand context. And so we thought, let's try and highlight some of the issues that are kind of unique to us. Um, so for example, we have an integrated data infrastructure that is used by the government that is unlike any other um, such system in the world. Um, we have a world leading movement of Maori data sovereignty um, and its siblings, uh, indigenous data sovereignty and many of the world's uh, leading thinkers on that are here in Aotearoa. Um, and last year we had the Christchurch mosque shootings which forced us as a nation to sort of hold up a mirror and look at ourselves and understand um, how we were interacting with each other both in the offline and the online realms and that led us to um, playing a leading role in the Christchurch call 
um, and, and leading efforts to try and um, provide better protections for users of social media platforms. Um, so these are issues that are, are pretty unique to New Zealand um, and we wanted to try and lift them up a little bit more and get some more people aware about um, these sorts of issues. One of, and one of the big questions regarding social media in general is um, how we have these conversations or, or how we can uh, regulate, I suppose, these channels to have less harm. But there's this kind of discussion of, you know, are they publishers or are they kind of um, open um, areas where people can kind of just put whatever they like and it's freedom of speech and there's, there's a bit of a balancing act. And with, with the social media channels, some of them have their own rules, but they're not necessarily constrained by, by government. How do you see that playing out um, with these new conversations between governments and, and the social media companies or media companies in general? Yeah, it's always going to be a really tricky conversation to have around that balance of um, protecting people from harmful online speech and activities um, and the need to protect freedom of speech. Um, and I mean, people who are the mo amongst the most affected by online harm and online hatred are also the sorts of people who will want to defend freedom of speech. Um, many, uh, Andrew Rahman, who is one of the contributors to the book, um, is uh, very vocal about how um, online platforms have contributed to the spread of Islamophobia and how that has then led to offline attacks on people as well. Um, but if you ask her about, so do you think that the government should be censoring speech on uh, social media platforms? She says, well, you have to be very careful because even if you have a government now that is um, very much in your camp and will look after your interests, there's no guarantee that future governments won't be, uh, be very different and misuse those same powers in a poor way. Um, and so uh, I think what um, some of the authors in the book try to move this discussion from is, is, is not so much about, well, you can say this and you can't say that. Um, and, and more thinking about, well, what are the impacts of that speech and how can we protect people from the impacts? Um, and one of the ideas that is floated in this book is about um, introducing a statutory duty of care for um, social media companies um, and, 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 and essentially lifting the onus of those social media companies to, and, and media companies generally to actually think about their users and, um, and, and consumers um, as, as people who use the services, but um, also people who are affected by the services. And so that these services have to, uh, owe a responsibility to these users to make sure that they're not being negatively harmed or affected. Now, this is a, um, this would significantly lift the bar um, in terms of uh, the responsibilities that social media companies have. So it has to be done very carefully um, with a lot of consideration of um, how this would actually be operationalized, what would the penalties be, how it would be enforced, all those sorts of things. Um, but effectively, it's just trying to shift the conversation away from um, what we've had for a long time, which is assuming that these platforms have safe harbor, um, that they are just, um, 
uh, neutral platforms and that people post letters through the platform and they just deliver the letters. Um, and, and, and actually saying, well, you have that these platforms probably do have the technology and power to um, do something about some of these types of online harm. Um, we can see, for example, in the COVID-19 context that most of the platforms have introduced tools to help um, curb the spread of misinformation and disinformation um, and that they've been able to identify a lot of this automatically. Um, and so we could try to extend that to other forms of um, online harm um, and, and um, to, to do a better job of protecting people who may be affected by um, the, the spread of information on these platforms. It, see, it seems like one of the big challenges is through the, the advertising revenue and that kind of um, click mentality, if you like, that polarization or controversial um, kind of clickbait content drives more traffic, which in turn means that they increase revenue, which is the sort of other challenge, uh, maybe not, not always in a harmful way, but just in a general kind of clickbait manner. What's the sort of thinking around how we can kind of get around some of that polarization or that kind of that approach that the social media companies use that I think generally people don't like, but we're kind of trapped in that system that exists. Yeah, I think uh, this is not really one of the issues that we cover in the book. Um, but I do think that for those sorts of platforms, we want to be starting to think about different business models for how they should operate. Um, I think for the last probably 20 years, um, the online business model has developed into this world where users expect a lot of things for free um, and they expect to get things for free and they just accept that um, the, the cost of that is that they'll get advertising. Um, I think we are starting to see a bit of a shift towards users being more open to the idea of paying for services that are of good quality and actually deliver value to them. Um, so we've had subscription services as a model for a really long time now. Um, and people pay for those subscription services because it's actually good for them. It's providing good value for money. Um, and so we might like to imagine a world where, hey, maybe you, you can have something like Facebook um, that is that that costs two or three dollars a month per person, but it has no advertising. Um, it has no um, algorithmic boosting of um, content. You know, it, it, it's a neutral platform. It is a genuinely neutral platform um, where people have their privacy respected um, and so on. Right, all of these things that people want, um, they 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 might be willing to pay for that. And I believe that there are some social media platforms that have been developed that try to pursue this sort of model. Um, of course, the hard thing is in a social media platform, you, there's this critical mass question because you need to have um, enough users on the platform to make it worthwhile to be on there. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there is probably a little bit of, we're seeing more of a movement away from this sort of advertising-driven model, um, but it might take a long time for that to really change. I had never thought of a sort of a paid neutral platform like that. So that's that's really sort of fascinating and sounds quite appealing. But yeah, as you say, that kind of critical mass is the key, the key part. One 
one thing that perhaps a lot of people don't think about is the the impacts of um, these technologies kind of beyond people's personal use. Um, so the data that's collected, for example, there's a lot of um, data from people doing all sorts of different things, browsing, et cetera, where they're going. Uh, and there's questions around who owns that data and what people can do with that. Um, mm -hmm. Where do you see those conversations around data ownership and who, who has access to that information or how you delete some of someone's personal information or any of those kinds of things regarding um, people's data from, from what they've been doing? Yeah, for a long time, um, it's basically the status quo is, is covered in the terms and conditions. And as long as you tick the box to say that you agree to the terms and conditions when you signed up, um, they can really basically do whatever they want as long as it's covered in the terms and conditions. Um, and a lot of these big organizations like Facebook and Google, they have pretty broad terms and conditions that allow them to own the data um, and then do what they want with it, um, whether that's to then further analyze it or to on-sell it to a third party. Um, and there's been a lot of pushback around that over the last, I'd say, 10 years. Um, and so the terms and conditions have been modified and changed and iterated so that they give individuals a bit more privacy. Um, but it's probably still not ideal. Um, and, and definitely the power sits in the hands of the corporation um, because uh, I, th I think one of the interesting questions that I think about is like, um, as a user, when you sign up to a platform like this, you have no negotiating power. You have no ability to say to this platform, well, actually, I think my data is pretty valuable. I would like a bit more of a service or I would like you to pay me or something like that. Um, it's presented as a either you'll pay the price to get in or you don't get to use our service. Um, and uh, I, I think that that leaves users in a, a, a less than ideal situation when they have that power and balance um, with the providers of the service. In terms of data sovereignty, um, and this is a topic that is covered in um, the, these notions of indigenous data sovereignty and Maori data sovereignty, um, I think we are slowly moving towards an idea that information that is about you as an individual and information that is, is generated by you as an individual should remain yours. Um, and in order for that to become a reality, um, we will need very drastic and disruptive changes to the way that these systems are designed and built. Um, it, it requires a rethinking of how we, re, uh, how we structure um, the economic models that are associated with these sorts of services. Um, but there are, several companies around the world trying to enable this, um, this idea that it's your data. Um, and so at least if you agree to give it to somebody else, you should be fairly compensated for that. Um, and, and it's up to you to choose who you want to effectively sell that data onto. Um, so, uh, and, and conversely, if you don't want to sell it to anybody, then you don't have to, right? Do, um, do you, do you, could you see that looking a little bit like, say, um, if there's a big company and, and they kind of had all of this data, but then each individual could sell their fraction of that data to whoever liked to use it, then you, mm. you get a, you know, a very small royalty 
every time someone was to use the data? Is that a sort of a model that people are exploring? Yeah, so I know of a particular group, a company in Auckland actually, um, their model is to try and um, use the APIs that already exist on um, existing platforms like Facebook and Spotify and Google. Um, and, and on those platforms, um, you still have access to your data. Um, it just may not be in a particularly easy to access form and it might be hidden behind 30 pages of clicking. Um, and so their website, uh, their, their, their tool will automatically pull that data out for you as long as you give it permission to do so and, and aggregates it in one place and then says, okay, well, here's like 10 other companies who would be interested in that same data. Would you like to um, provide some of that to one of those companies and get paid directly? Um, and so I think that this is not, I, I don't think that's an ideal solution because it's still talking about how you monetize your data. Um, and a lot of that data may still be very personal stuff that you don't want to monetize. Um, but at least it puts the individual in a slightly better position of power and, and, uh, and, 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 and they have the choice to be able to say, okay, well, I want to be compensated for um, selling my data to one of these other companies. One of, one of the other um, big impacts of clouds and software and streaming is the energy required on the servers and, and the energy required to, um, to basically do the things that we do, be that streaming Netflix or sending an email or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. The, the part that isn't always thought about is where that energy comes from, especially if there's, you know, servers that are powered by fossil fuel rather than renewable sources. And there's a, the, I mean, Bitcoin in particular mining, Bitcoin's a big one as well. And, and all of the transactions happening with banks around the world, et cetera. What are, what are some of the, what's the understanding around moving towards renewable energies or some of the impact from, from the digital technologies that people, um, have in sort of in terms of carbon emissions in, in that space. Yeah, so there's a chapter on this topic in the book written by Mary McLeod, um, and most of what I know about it, I learned from her. So um, I should give credit to her for educating me about these issues. Um, essentially, there's like two sets of energy, or two two ways to categorize the energy that's being used. There's the energy that's being used to do computation um, at at a server and so um, serving a website is probably not that computationally heavy, but if you're running a very um, complicated AI model, or um, as you mentioned, trying to do some blockchain stuff, um, then that can have a very high computation cost. And then the second is in the uh, tr transfer costs. So trying to ship data from um, across vast distances around the world. Um, and uh, it's, it's been interesting looking at the trends, how, um, our usage of data or our consumption of data has changed over time. How in sort of the 90s, it was entirely text. Um, you'd be pretty lucky if you got an image um, and that was largely constrained by slow transfer speeds. Um, and then over time, we started using more and more images. We started doing more and more videos. Now we have streaming live video that we expect to be delivered to our eyeballs in real time. Um, and as we move along that um, spectrum, it, it gets heavier and heavier. The costs become higher and higher. 
um, both in terms of transmission and in terms of computation where it's actually being computed. Um, so there's be definitely become more awareness around where your cloud is if you are a company that uses a cloud server. Um, for a long time, if you wanted to use um, Microsoft uh, or Amazon um, or Google Cloud services, then if you're in New Zealand, you, you, you're out of luck. You have to go overseas. Um, and in most cases, because you wanted to have low latency, you'd go to Australia. The problem being that um, Australian electricity is about seven times dirtier than New Zealand electricity because of our high reliance on um, renewable energy sources already. Um, and we do have a couple of local cloud providers, but they just don't operate at the same scale um, as, as these global giants um, that have data centers all around the world. Um, interestingly, while we were in the editing phase of the book, um, sort of about uh, two or three weeks before we were putting the book in to be published, um, Microsoft announced that they will be putting a data center in Auckland. Um, and I think that partly that is a recognition that there is enough of a market in New Zealand to justify them putting in a data center. But also in their uh, press releases, they did talk about um, that uh, the, the Auckland data center would be easier to power more greenly um, than some of the other data centers that they have and it would help them meet some of their um, environmental targets. And this is something that we've talked about a little bit um, is this idea that, well, if New Zealand has relatively clean energy, then could we become a place that um, has relatively cheap but also clean compute power? Um, and there's going to be probably larger costs in transfer and transmission of data because we're at the bottom of the world and far away from everyone else. Um, but it might make sense for um, a, a company in the UK or the US or China to ship their data to New Zealand, run a really complicated AI model and do the training and analysis using cheap green electricity here um, and then get the results sent back um, to, to where they need to be. Um, that, and actually, sorry, go on. Has that been, I know there's been a few conversations regarding TY and what to do with TY, yeah. but of course that is, quite, it is quite far away from, uh, from a lot of other places in terms of exporting that. So that would be, of course, where there would be leakage and loss in, in energy as well. But is that, is that something that has been considered or talked about as well? Yeah, I think that it has been suggested that we could basically turn it into a massive data center. Um, it's also relatively cold down there, so it'd be easier to cool than um, in some other places in the world. Um, and that's, for example, why there are data centers in places like Iceland, because it's easier to cool. Um, I'm not sure how seriously those ideas have been taken. Um, TY Point's still got at least another year, and the government's going to have to try and figure out um, what it's what it wants to do with that. Um, I think one of the big questions is around uh, the local economy in that area and the sorts of people who live in those areas. And I don't know how easily you could convert people who work in an aluminium smelter to people who work in a data center. There might need to be quite a bit of retraining that goes on. Um, so yeah, there, there are broader considerations than just here's a big consumer of electricity, let's replace it with another big consumer of electricity. Um, 
there, there's uh, a, a bit more thinking that needs to go on about whether or not that is a genuinely good proposition. Yeah, your, your point about the, the cooling as well, when you think of the, the current water challenges we're having in Auckland makes for an interesting question for cooling at the data center here, but um, that's, that's, that's a completely different issue altogether. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you, we hear a lot of these conversations around artificial intelligence and some people say it's still, you know, decades away. Other people are saying it's very close and we need to be quite concerned. What, what's your take um, around some of the machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies that are coming out? I know GP3 um, has just come out recently, which is one of the, the sort of most advanced um, which is effectively a, a smart chat bot, isn't it? Um, yeah. Where, where do you see the kind of the opportunity and the risk at the moment and, and how quickly do you think some of those will start to emerge? Yeah, so I think um, firstly that, I mean, the terms artificial intelligence and machine learning have been misused and um, the, the, the definitions have really changed over time. They now mean very different things to different people. Um, I think your question was more around um, is a general artificial intelligence coming? Um, are we going to get the sorts of AI that we've seen in science fiction movies and books for um, the last couple of decades? Um, I think that is probably still a while away. Um, we've got systems that can now kind of beat the Turing test but um, I, don't, I wouldn't call them general intelligences. They are still being developed to solve relatively narrow problems. Um, I know that there are people trying to build general intelligences, but it's a, it's a really hard problem. Um, and to be honest, like, we don't even know how the brain works all that well. Like, we have some idea, but there are still a lot of unknown questions. Um, and I, I struggle to understand how we would be able to build um, computers that can um, exhibit human-like levels of intelligence without understanding how human intelligence exists either. Um, so, so I think to me that is a little bit um, further away in terms of what we have now. Um, we are gonna see more and more disruption as people develop more and more sophisticated models that can do more and more smarter things. Um, and there will be lots of tasks that previously were done by people that can now be automated. Um, and I tend to think that th thinking about the impacts of automation is perhaps more useful than trying to think about, is it AI, is it intelligence? Um, and, and dealing with the impacts of automation is something that we've tried to do for a really long time. Um, if you think about the industrial revolution and how um, it replaced people in assembly lines with machines and robots. Um, that's automation, right? And um, what we're seeing now of AI machine learning is just automation, but for um, less physical things and more intangible information type things, which can then also become physical, tangible things. But um, by and large, we're, we're the, the most of the concern and shock is around uh, things that were perhaps more information based that people thought were safe from automation. Um, and, and so I think it's the same sorts of things that we were doing um, over the last century 
to help protect people from the impacts of automation that we need to keep doing and keep evolving and keep, um, keep, keep improving um, over time uh, so that we can protect people from the impacts of automation on their livelihoods, um, but also um, the impacts of automation on, on their lives as a member of society. You hear different um, perspectives of, about that and people say, you know, when we transitioned in the past, um, people just found new jobs. But it seems with this level of automation and these new technologies that those who would lose their jobs may not have the appropriate skill sets to then pick up the, the other jobs or these newer jobs that are kind of more technical or, or more specific. Um, what will, do you think that that's going to be the case? And, and, and that's what, you know, there's conversations about, you know, how we might need a UBI or we might need to prepare for these kind of automations of a lot of those roles. Where do you see that, that space or what are the things or the concerns that you think as we start to kind of see some of these transitions take place? Yeah, I think I, I'll just mention that um, we don't actually have a chapter on this topic in the book. Um, we were originally going to have a chapter on the gig economy and unfortunately it got left out because we already had too much um, to cover in this book. Um, but it's something that we might be able to cover in the future. Um, in terms of the, 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 that skills question, I think that it's a really tough one because, yeah, we are seeing that um, in a lot of these industries that are becoming more and more automated, that the skills may not be that transferable into other industries. Um, but I also think that there's this interesting effect in that if, if you sort of classify the types of jobs that we have in society as being low, medium and high skill, um, the automation has already removed a lot of the low skill stuff. Um, but there are still a lot of low skilled jobs that haven't been automated predominantly for um, economic viability reasons, right? That it's probably, it's still cheaper to um, effectively underpay a human to do the job than to try and develop an automated system to do the job. Um, and we've seen that very recently during COVID-19 with all of these low paid workers suddenly becoming very essential um, because their jobs can't be done remotely and their jobs can't be automated very easily. Um, and, and suddenly they're the backbone of um, our survival. Um, and so uh, when, when the automation is targeting those like sort of mid skill jobs, um, I think it's something that's a little bit interesting is that as potentially pushing those lower skill jobs even further down. It's, it's making it so that um, we have to value those lower skill jobs even less to justify not automating them um, as the technology improves and gets better. Um, and, I, and I do worry a little bit about what will happen when the technology improves enough um, that it sort of crosses that point where um, the, the, that threshold that people are willing to you know, be criminally underpaid at, um, and, 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 and those low skilled jobs will basically just vanish. Um, because if we run out of sort of low skilled jobs for people to work in that where the skills are easily transferable to other jobs, um, there's not going to be much left for people to do that other than to retrain and train a lot for a really long time to try and push themselves up into that sort of mid, mid um, skill level, high skill level band. Um, 
the, the other wiring part is then when the, the automation starts to automate um, very high skilled jobs as well. Um, I think we've seen reports of um, accountancy type jobs being automatable. Um, I, I actually saw what I would say is a relatively ridiculous report that said that by 2050, there will only be seven accountants in New Zealand, which is, is, is a shocking number, but it's a shocking number that I don't believe because it doesn't make logical sense. Um, I've, I've heard of other interesting situations where, you know, yeah. if, if we were starting to automate surgery and, and other things as well, where mm. that becomes, you know, a very highly skilled job and, and surgeons as well, sort of potentially losing their jobs, which is yeah. a, a, another really interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And I saw, so I think, when you start to accept that there is a possibility that even the very highest skilled jobs could be automated, then the question should be shifted to, well, why are we so obsessed with jobs and work? Um, what does a future look like potentially where maybe we work less or maybe people don't work because there's nothing left for people to do that is work um, because everything is automated. And I think that that is very far away that um, a world where everything is fully automated and we live in the sort of wall-e type world is probably hundred or hundreds of years away. I mean, it's bad to make predictions because they're always wrong, um, but it's a while away. But um, I, I think that that's the sort of shift in thinking, right? Is that instead of being worried that, oh, you might be displaced by this job and therefore you're left with nothing, it's, it's rethinking about what does, um, what, what is the human experience? Um, and, and maybe there are different conceptions that will allow us to survive in a different way. And, and, and I think COVID in a way, the first lockdown has given us a glimpse of that world perhaps. So while it wasn't kind of under good circumstances, it, it gave some people space and time mm. to, to think about what a, a slower pace lifestyle might look like. Yeah, for some people, for sure. I think yeah, for others, yeah. it was incredibly busy. And, <laughs> yes, um, they oh, had to oh, run at a much faster pace. Com completely agree. It was, it yeah. was, um, it was indeed sort of this really polarizing thing where some people were busier than ever, and, and then uh, mm. others, sort of non-essential, of course, had had that time. I think that's um, that's a a really good way to to wrap the conversation and a nice kind sure. of thought for us to think about, Andrew. So really appreciate. Uh, the time to, to talk on the podcast today. Do you have anything you want to kind of finalize or, or add? Nothing that comes off the top of my head. Um, yeah, no, um, it's been great to have a chat. Um, I, it's, it's always interesting to um, delve a little bit more deeply into the types of issues that we cover uh, in the book. Um, it, it can be hard to get all of your thoughts down into you know, a 3,000 word chapter or a 4,000 word chapter. Um, so it's good to have discussions and to keep talking about these sorts of issues because um, they're, they're probably not going to go away. Um, something that we talk about in this book is that um, society is driving the development and design of technology, but also technology is now driving the design and development of society. Um, and both are now so intertwined with each other that you, you, you can't just regulate technology on its own without considering its broader impacts on society. Um, technology is not just a standalone sector that has no impact from everything else and could be excised if it was behaving poorly. Um, 
and, and so technology issues really are societal issues um, and, and, and we need to be thinking about it in those terms. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Go well. <laughs>